You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I have a degree in art history, and as I'm looking over at my art history books, too many of them, I need to get a new bookshelf. This is my mental note to myself on that. It feels like it's been a minute since I sat down to record like a full-length solo episode of this show. Um, I just worked out the next 12 12 calendar months of this podcast. So 12 new topics are headed your way, um, well, over the course of the next year. But I'm really excited about this crop of art historical subjects for us to dive into. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story about the past. I will let you know what that's going to be today in just a moment. Um, before we dive in, this is your cursory reminder to rate the show, give it a nice review, subscribe if you haven't already. It really, really does help me get in front of new listeners, and that only means more content for you. You can also um, follow the show on Instagram at Art of History Podcast, um, where I will also post supplemental images and the main image of the artwork that we're discussing today. While you're there, go ahead and give us a follow. Of course, it will only save you time for future episodes. So without any further ado, we have discussed art thefts, art heists by the Nazis on the show before, and we are going to get into another one today. But there is something that sets the plunder of this quote-unquote masterpiece of Prussian art, the focus of a host of legends, apart. It is the single most valuable piece of missing art in history. But at the same time, it isn't a single piece of art at all. Today, we are taking a look at the Amber Room, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a room entirely made of amber. This is a material that has fascinated humankind since the release of the hit film Jurassic Park. No, it actually has fascinated humans long, long before that. Just so we're all on the same page about what we're discussing here, amber is formed from resin, which is different from sap, I have learned, um, which is exuded from tree bark. Um, it protects a tree by blocking against any gaps that might form in the bark and then work, you know, things from the outside could work their way further in and damage the tree. Um, it hardens up and it forms basically a seal. The material that we know as amber is resin that has either oozed off of a tree, you know, down the trunk, or has formed in a branch or a log, and then that log has been carried away from the tree. Usually they get carried in rivers and then buried, where over time the resin hardens and hardens even more and forms into amber. So this is a substance that once it makes it into human hands is already over a million or millions of years old. Sometimes, like in Jurassic Park, <laughs> creatures like bugs or small snails, worms, things like that can get stuck inside it and are basically preserved and fossilized, but through a different process than typical fossilization. So it's been fascinating to humans for that reason, just like a scientific curiosity for centuries, but it's been used by humans since the Stone Age from over, I think, like 13, 14,000 years ago. It's been used as a fuel to start fires. It's been used as ornament, jewelry, decoration, things like that. It's also been carved into figurines um, for millennia. I guess as civilization goes on into the future, we have to think of ways to make things more complicated, right? So the idea of paneling a room entirely out of amber was first raised in the year 1701 at the Prussian court by Frederick I, who is actually the first king of Prussia. 
He was also known as Frederick III, Elector of Brandenburg and Duke of Prussia. Through some political maneuvering, which I won't bore you with here, he convinced the Holy Roman Emperor, who oversaw his land at the time, basically, um, to allow Frederick to elevate his own territory, which would become Prussia, into a kingdom proper. So that happened in 1700. He gets to be the first king of Prussia as a result. He actually got the idea, apparently, to make an amber room from his queen, Sophie Charlotte, who loved the arts and literature. The amber chamber that Sophie and Frederick planned together was intended for their residence in what is now Berlin's western district of Charlottenburg. It's taken me a couple tries to say that. This residence began as a simple summer house. We've heard this story before, right? Versailles. Through various renovations, which, again, were kind of all the rage among Baroque rulers, um, this residence soon took on the much grander appearance and the name of a palace. The King of Prussia named it Leitzenberg Palace. A theater was actually constructed inside Leitzenberg for the use of Sophie Charlotte in one of the wings. The design for the, quote, radical and complex construction of the Amber Room was made into a reality by German sculptor Andreas Schulter, who was the chief architect of the Prussian court. He designed a room that would, quote, come to symbolize the age of reason in which it was conceived, evoking power and beauty and inspiring this sense of awe in the natural world. Sidebar, if you want to hear more about this age of reason and what it meant for the arts, you will want to listen to, oh, I don't know what number it is, but the the early episode of this podcast, it's one of my first, about the painting The Death of Marat. That's a very good one if you're interested in these more, uh, like, political associations of art and the more intellectual bend that art achieved in the 1700s. Anyway, the use of amber for interior decoration at this scale was something completely new. At the time of the chamber's construction in the Leitzenberg Palace, amber as a material was worth 12 times more than gold. And yes, it is, again, it's just fossilized tree resin, but it was called the gold of the north at this time, and it had been fished in nuggets from the Baltic Sea by the ton. The Baltic region is said to house the largest known deposit of amber in the world. The difficulties that had to be overcome to, you know, get it off of the bottom of these rivers and waterways, I think that coupled with the fascination that, again, humans still have with amber, I think that's lending it its high, high price point here. The amber that was fished out of the Baltic Sea was then, quote, heated, shaped, and colored before being slotted together on huge backing boards like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. This refining process was undertaken by Danish craftsman Gottfried Wolfram, who had to actually invent a new way of working with amber in order to realize Schluter, I'm sorry, I said Schulter earlier, it's Schluter, in order to realize Schluter's design vision. These two worked together on the room until 1707, when the work was taken up by two other amber masters from a city called Danzig, um, named Gottfried Terau and Ernst Schacht. I hope my German is passable this episode because it's not gonna stop here. (laughs) In order to actually get the refined material of amber into place, the resin was heated and then dipped in an infusion of honey and linseed oil before being worked onto panels of wood, which were covered in either gold or silver leaf, and then finally these panels were decorated with precious jewels. Sophie Charlotte died pretty young at age 37, and at that time, her husband, Frederick I, renamed Leitzenberg Charlottenburg Palace in her honor. After the king's own death, his son, Frederick William I, inherited the palace. This new Prussian king, he he was much more interested in things like military reform than opulent building projects. Um, He was known as the Soldier King, and in fact, he demolished his mother's theater, used the salvaged wood to construct a school. So like, that's how pragmatic this guy was. He primarily used Charlottenburg Palace only for like state visits and official matters, um, and he spent just enough money to keep the place like maintained. He wasn't adding anything on, he wasn't, you know, embellishing as his parents had been. 
It was on one of those official state visits when Tsar Peter the Great of Russia visited in 1716 that the Amber Room became destined for a new home. The story goes that Peter the Great just fell in love with the Amber Room as he was visiting, um, and so Frederick William gave it to him as a gift. <laughs> it was to forge an alliance between Prussia and Russia against their common enemy, Sweden. Um, I just love painting Sweden as like a villain, which is something that comes up in Russian history um, a lot. Peter the Great wrote at the time to his empress, Catherine, not to be confused with Catherine the Great, who comes later. <laughs> he wrote, quote, The king has made me the elegant present of a yacht, which was finally decorated in Potsdam, and the amber study, which I have long desired. So evidently, we've learned two things. The amber room was used as a study, which I haven't really gotten into describing the effect that the Amber Room has when you're in it, but we'll get there. That would have been just an amazing place to have your study. But also, which I have long desired, apparently it had a reputation even at this time. <laughs> and Peter the Great like really wanted it. So I don't know whether, okay, tangent. To be a fly on the wall during that state visit, was Peter the Great just like nudging the <laughs> King Frederick, what is his name, Frederick William the whole time? man, this room's really nice. Wish I could have it. Something like that. Wish I could have something like this. Was it completely altruistic from King Frederick Willem I? Or was it like, okay, geez, this guy really likes my amber room. Let's pack it up. <laughs> I don't know, but I would love to find out. It wasn't completely one-sided though. Two years later, Peter the Great would send a thank you present to Frederick William of Prussia. This consisted of, quote, 55 grenadiers of gigantic stature and an ivory goblet that he had turned himself on the lathe. The amber panels and the decorations of the chamber at the Charlottenburg Palace, these were deconstructed and they were placed into 18 large crates, along with the unused pieces of the originally sourced amber. These crates were then moved to the city that Tsar Peter the Great had just founded, St. Petersburg. After arriving to St. Petersburg in its boxes in 1716, the Amber Room was initially stored in the Winter House in St. Petersburg. Um, it isn't exactly clear where Peter ordered the panels to be installed originally or whether he did so like at all. Um, it's also possible that the Amber panels were just displayed. They weren't really installed in a room, but rather displayed as part of a general like European art collection. It wouldn't be until the accession of Peter the Great's daughter, Empress Elizabeth of Russia, that the gift from Berlin would find a permanent home. Let's back up a little bit now that we are on the Russian side of things. I'll give you a little bit of backstory about Peter the Great and his own <laughs> building projects. Back in 1708, Peter had presented his fiancée, Catherine, with an estate about 19-20 miles south of St. Petersburg. It was pretty simple by, you know, like Emperor of Russia standards. It consisted of just a farmhouse at first, but Peter probably had larger plans for the estate, especially because he renamed the adjoining village Sarskoy Selo, or the Tsar's village. Today, Sarskoy Selo is enveloped within the modern day municipality of Pushkin, which again, it's like kind of part of St. Petersburg, but also kind of not. In 1726, Catherine and Peter, they had been married for like 20 years at this point. She had borne the only two children out of 12 that would make it to adulthood. So I guess as a reward, I don't know. As a reward, maybe. Peter built a stone palace to replace her original house. This now boasted 16 rooms across two stories. They were, quote, finished in polished alabaster. And of course, this befitted a little bit more the residence of an empress. He also had garden terraces, parterres, trellised arbors, and ponds installed on the south side of the estate, while a menagerie was added to the north side. Peter and Catherine's daughter, who became Empress Elizabeth of Russia, was of course the one who inherited the manor when her parents died. Um, she is on the list of potential future episode subjects, but for now, all you need to know about her is that she loved building projects. On the site of her mother's manor house, she commissioned the Italian architect Bartolomeo Rastretti, nope, I'm sorry, Rastrelli, to transform it into a Baroque pleasure palace. 
Today, the Catherine Palace sits on this site, and it retains the facade that Rastrelli dreamed up for Empress Elizabeth. Quote, a wide light blue ribbon, a palace with snow white columns, which was, of course, accented with sculptures gilded using 220 pounds of gold. I will naturally have a picture of the Catherine Palace on the Instagram for you. You're going to recognize it once you've seen it. Um, it's really unforgettable. <laughs> By 1756, the palace included 40 state apartments, five rooms that just opened up onto the Great Hall, and more than 100 private and service rooms. The palace's interior is described as, quote, a jeweled chain of linked halls, salon opening into salon, white, then crimson, green, and then amber. Because it was in this palace that Empress Elizabeth decided that she would like to display the amber room. Rastrelli oversaw several other Russian, German, and Italian craftsmen who were brought in to work on the Amber Room in the coming years. And I say work on it because they didn't just install the Amber Room that had been sent from Prussia, but they added to it. They embellished it with the unused original Amber and with additional Amber shipped in from Berlin. As if the original hadn't been lavish enough, they now wanted to make it fit in with its opulent new home. Rastrelli, quote, placed the panels symmetrically on the middle level of the walls, separating them with pilasters containing mirrors and embellishing the room with gilded wood carvings. Where there was not enough amber, areas of the walls were covered with canvas and painted in imitation of the stone by the artist Ivan Belsky. In 1763, Catherine the Great, so she's Empress now, also another future episode subject, she, quote, gave orders that the painted canvas on the lower part of the wall be replaced with the newly made amber panels that she had ordered. Craftsmen produced eight flat panels for the lower tier with a mosaic pattern, eight pedestals for the pilasters, and also a dessous de porte, which if you don't know what that is, I looked it up. It's a horizontal panel that's like embellished and it's supposed to go over a doorway. That was for the middle door. Catherine also ordered, quote, carved elements for the cornice that included some of the old pieces that had been made in Berlin. In four years, 450 kilograms of amber were used in this work. And by 1770, the creation of the amber room was complete the hall had now acquired its final appearance. At this time, the room covered more than 590 square feet, or 55 square meters, and was adorned with over six tons of amber. That's 13,000 pounds. Modern estimates of the room's value range from $142 million at the more conservative end to over $500 million. When the panels of the Amber Room were finished, they were heralded by visitors to the court in St. Petersburg as one of the many <laughs> eighth wonders of the world. A passage describing them, written by a French novelist, gives you like an idea of the impression that they made on viewers. He wrote, quote, Only in the thousand and one nights and in magic fairy tales, where the architecture of palaces is trusted to magicians, spirits, and genies, can one read about rooms made of diamonds, ruby, jacinth, and other jewels. The room's dazzling splendor had by now outpaced anything, I think, that the original Baroque-minded architect Schluter could have ever intended. Quote, the amber decor was arranged in two tiers on three walls. The main middle tier consisted of eight large upright panels. Four of those contained compositions made in Florence in the 1750s from colored stones, so mosaics. Um, they were allegorical depictions of the senses designed by Giuseppe Zocchi. They were called sight, taste, hearing, and together touch and smell make up the fourth one. The gaps between the panels were filled with tall mirror pilasters. Rectangular amber panels were placed in the lower tier of the walls. In the southwest corner stood a small amber console table with an elegantly curving leg. The room was further adorned by chest of drawers made in Russia and Chinese porcelain. Here too, in glazed display cases, was one of the most significant European collections of amber articles made in the 17th and 18th centuries by German, Polish, and Russian craftsmen. So store your amber collection of curiosities inside your room made of amber. <laughs> 
The amber panels on the wall, by the way, I don't know if you caught this, they were backed with gold and silver leaf. So amber is translucent, light can shine through it, which means that the room would have reflected the candlelight used to illuminate it. So like the walls would have been reflecting the candlelight back at you. So the room would have literally appeared to be glowing if you stood inside it. The Amber Room remained a treasured Russian possession, it's a room, but it's also a possession, I love this, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Empress Elizabeth used it as a meditation space, Catherine the Great used it to um, gather with her courtiers, and Alexander II used it primarily as a trophy room for his own prized collection of amber trinkets. The room even survived the Russian Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. After the revolution, the Russian government turned the Catherine Palace into a museum. The Amber Room had been refurbished a couple times in the 19th century, in 1833, 1865, and between 1893 and 97. After the revolution, in 1933 to 1935, some minor renovation work was carried out, um, but a major re renovation was slated for 1941. If you know anything about modern European history, however, something else is about to pop off in Russia in, in 1941. On June 22nd of that year, Adolf Hitler initiated Operation Barbarossa, which launched three million German soldiers into what was then the Soviet Union, formerly Russia. An urgent order arrived in the former St. Petersburg, now called Leningrad, just after midday on June 22nd, and that order was pretty simple. Pack it up. The Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union had come at four in the morning, and it had come without a declaration of war. Quote, so rapid was the advance that the Kremlin calculated Leningrad's southern gateway would be overrun within weeks. And so the order hit the city's museums and palaces to begin evacuating Leningrad, or St. Petersburg's, treasures. This was a tall order. There were 2.5 million exhibits in the State Hermitage Museum, and hundreds of thousands more objects in the Alexander, Catherine, and Pavlovsk palaces. And that's not to mention the collections that were housed at Peterhof, Oraniabom, and Gachnia. A curator at the Catherine Palace scribbled in his diary, quote, 22nd June, flown through the halls this evening, packing what we can. Then, a few days later, 24th June, comrades having nosebleeds from leaning over the packing crates, run out of boxes and paper, had to use the Tsarina's dress trunks and their clothes to wrap up our treasures. But the city's most unique and most valuable treasure was undoubtedly the Amber Room. Head curator Anatoly Kuchumov was tasked with saving the Amber Room from falling into German hands, but he quickly realized that this treasure was not going to fit in some trunks, and it could not be wrapped in paper. The amber-paneled room, it, it wasn't just intricate. It was very delicate by this time. It would require intense focus to dismantle it without causing permanent damage. Kuchumov also realized that the installation of central heating over the years inside the palace had made the amber, which had once been pretty supple, very brittle. His staff feared, like, touching it at all, dismantling it at all, because it could break if you made the wrong move. The result was that eight days after Germany invaded, when the first Soviet train loaded with treasures steamed out of Leningrad and went east towards Siberia, the Amber Room was not on board. By then, curators left in the city had no more time to think about what they were going to do. Quote, They were enlisted to bolster the town's defenses. One wrote in her diary, We carry out the work of guards, office workers, cleaners. All walls are bare, apart from the walls of the Amber Room. I hate to leave you in suspense, but we're going to take a short ad break. I'm going to get a little drink. And when we come back, we will discover what is to become of the mystical, mythical, magical Amber Room. And we are back. So Operation Barbarossa was launched on the 22nd of June, and it would take the Nazis until mid-September to fully ingrade, ingrade, invade Leningrad. 
But the city was cut off from the outside world by the end of August, when German troops seized a railway terminal 10 miles to the south. This effectively halted any meaningful evacuation efforts of either people or the city's treasures. The curators at the Catherine Palace, their solution in the end was not to remove the Amber Room, but to hide it in plain sight. The priceless amber walls were covered with layers of cloth and padding, mostly cotton muslin. The thought was that if German troops did muscle their way into the Catherine Palace, it was hoped that they would be, quote, deceived into thinking that here was just another ordinary empty room. The Nazis did indeed force their way into the palace's halls, like within hours of taking the city. They used it as both a barracks and a playground. They used it for target practice and just like kind of running amok after the long siege. One German officer described how almost immediately crude signs were nailed to the gilded palace doors, labeling the rooms, quote, reserved for the first company, etc., etc. The officer described how, exhausted by the grueling advance, sleeping soldiers rested their muddy boots on the, quote, precious cities and chairs. It seems like as he was writing, a cheer went up and the officer raced to see what his men had discovered. On the first floor, in the middle of a room in a long corridor, quote, two privates in curiosity toiled in tearing protective covers off the walls. They revealed wonderfully shining amber carvings, the frames of a mosaic picture. And the cheers were because the Germans knew exactly what they had discovered. The Nazis were, of course, prolific art plunderers, and Hitler definitely knew about the Amber Room. He viewed it as German property. After all, it was German-made, and it symbolized Hitler's idealized vision of German cultural patrimony. But more than that, the Amber Room had been made for Germans. Hitler absolutely wanted it back as a symbol of both German ingenuity and of his own power, you know, just just to prove that he could take it. And it wasn't as if the Nazis had fully stumbled blindly upon the Amber Room. Some would have known exactly what they were looking for. Within 36 hours, they got themselves together and they undertook the task the palace's curators had refused to do. They stripped the Amber Room of all of its panels and decorations, they pried the pieces from the walls, and they packaged everything into crates. Where the Amber Room had once glowed in the middle of the Catherine Palace, all the Nazis left behind were, quote, bare boards and a tangled mystery. For when Soviet curators returned to the Catherine Palace in March 1944, they discovered that, quote, where they had once concealed the eighth wonder of the world, there was now just a void. But it wasn't as if the Amber Room had vanished into thin air, at least not yet. After being looted from the Catherine Palace, the crates containing the disassembled Amber Chamber were shipped to Konigsberg in Germany, which is a um, current-day Russian enclave on the Baltic coast. Today it's known as Kaliningrad. The gift book of the Konigsberg Castle Museum recorded the arrival of the Amber Room as item 200. It was a present from the Third Reich's administration of palaces and gardens. There, the room was reconstructed inside Konigsberg Castle. It remained there, it was on display for the German people for the next two years. The museum's director, Alfred Rode, wrote in 1942 that the Amber Room returned to its homeland was Konigsberg's finest adornment. Incidentally, Konigsberg also contained its own collection of amber. Um, I don't know whether they put it inside the Amber Room as the Russian czars and czarinas had done, but um, there's a lot of amber floating around the Baltic, I've discovered. As time went on and the tide of the Second World War turned against Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer ordered his looted treasures at Konigsberg, which included a lot of other pieces besides the Amber Room, to be shipped out. He was evacuating now as well. At some point in early 1944, with Allied forces closing in on Germany, the Amber Room was dismantled once again and was stored in crates in the castle basement. Konigsberg Castle was heavily bombed by the RAF in August 1944. It also took on artillery fire as the Soviets approached the city, uh, I think in 1945. 
The castle's historic chambers were completely destroyed in the bombings. But when recovery efforts were underway, no pieces of amber were discovered among the rubble. The Allies were left to wonder, what had become of the eighth wonder of the world? Had it been successfully evacuated, or had it been inside the castle as they rained down fire upon it? It's at this point that the Amber Room does vanish into thin air, and its fate falls in with some of art history's other greatest mysteries. It sounds, it really does sound silly to say, but a nearly 600 square foot room simply disappeared. There have been, I'm not kidding, hundreds, literally hundreds of quote-unquote leads generated in the search for the Amber Room over the decades. And search as a term, it ranges from everything from trying to decipher, you know, whether it really was destroyed, to actual physical searches, because as we'll get into, there are people, hopeful treasure hunters, who maintain that it was moved out of Konigsberg Castle and are just kind of looking to piece together the Nazi movements um, once the treasure trains kind of made their way across Europe. As you can probably imagine, this makes trying to sift through the possible route taken by the Amber Room once it left Leningrad a just dizzying, exhausting process. The boom in treasure hunting with regards to the Amber Room seems to have taken off around the turn of the 21st century, when a German company offered Russia a gift of 3.5 million US dollars to construct a replica of the Amber Room that they had been in, in Russia that they had been working on for the past 20 years. Quote, so much was being invested in a new Amber Room, and yet no one seemed able to resolve the fate of the original masterpiece. And even if you're being conservative with your estimates, <laughs> the original Amber Room at this time was said to be worth at least $250 million, making it the most valuable missing work of art in the world. But theories as to the Amber Room's location, its status, so to speak, they began from the moment that the Allies began the cleanup effort after World War II. So this isn't just like a modern, you know, we, we love a mystery, we love a conspiracy. This isn't a modern conspiracy. This has been something that's been perpetuated since May of 1945, when the Soviets sent Professor Alexander Brusov to recover any stolen artifacts that he could find from Konigsberg. He reportedly discovered the burnt remains of three out of the four mosaics, remember the ones from um, Italy, which depicted the five senses? Um, the ones that had originally been in the Amber Room, he discovered those in the castle's basement. We're going to return to Brusov and get into like his work at Konigsberg a little bit more deeply in a few moments. Um, but at this time, he was forced to conclude that the Amber Room had been destroyed. But people like Anatoly Kuchumov, the man who had failed to keep the room safe as curator in 1941, refused to accept that conclusion. And I think that's where this conspiracy, this mystery takes root. With the support of the KGB, actually, Kachumov had Brusov denounced and started his own investigation, probably the first treasure hunt looking for the Amber Room. It's also possible that his treasure hunt in itself was a conspiracy, looking to divert attention away from the own, his own mistake that he had made in not packing up the Amber Room at the Catherine Palace. So all this to say, theories abound to this day about the possible location of the Amber Room. I'm not here to try and solve the case myself, although, as always, if about, like, I don't know, 2,000 of you want to chip in 10 bucks each... We could probably get an expedition together, take a lead up, and, and look into this a bit more seriously. So let me know if you guys want to start that. Um, we can reinstall the Amber Room inside the Anne of Cleves house that we're obviously going to purchase. And I think we have to turn it into like a history lover's retreat at this point. Anyway, <laughs> it doesn't help the hopeful treasure hunters today that every single official directly connected to the original Amber Room, by the time that they started looking... They were all dead or missing. <laughs> the, the trail had gone cold, and ironically, during the Cold War. Quote, Political and economic conditions led to Russia's files, diaries, and memorabilia being broken up, stolen, concealed, and classified. Even the most important Russian archives that might contain material on the official searches for the Amber Room are arcane. 
The museum authorities in Moscow and St. Petersburg are awkward and often inhospitable, especially to those who come without offers of international funding or research exchanges. Some progress has been made by researchers, and I have a source for you. Um, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but some progress has been made by people who've been able to piece together a possible narrative from like outside of the official records. They talked to a network of veterans, citizens, comrades, and curators, and were able to garner some leads over the years. Although the definitive truth, quote unquote, is still something that I think people just are refusing to agree on. So let's return to where the facts take us, and then we'll talk about some of the theories. Konigsberg Castle's museum director, Alfred Rode, had studied the Amber Room's panels intricately while it was on display there, which is how we can so confidently say that Konigsberg was the final place that the Amber Room was actually displayed. In late 1943, with the end of World War II in sight, Rode was advised, as his Soviet counterparts had been, to dismantle the Amber Room and hide it away in crates for safekeeping. Then the castle was destroyed by Allied bombers in August 1944, and this is where, again, the documented trail of the Amber Room goes cold, and we enter into the realm of mystery. While overseeing crews who were digging out the foundations of the castle after the war, some of whom were German volunteers working in exchange for food rations, Brusov purportedly discovered the burnt remains of those three out of four mosaics that had been in the Amber Room. He also recorded the discovery of bronze hangings from the doors of the Catherine Palace, cornice pieces that could have been in the Amber Room, iron strips with bolts with the help of which parts of the Amber Room were boxed into crates, and then he wrote, we should give up looking for the Amber Room. In his mind, it has been definitively destroyed. Those pieces that he recorded were found in the footprint of Knight's Hall at Konigsberg Castle, which had been completely destroyed in a devastating fire, and it was looking likely to Brusov that the Amber Room had been contained within that hall. Nevertheless, Brusov did actually find 1,000 smaller pieces of art within the wreckage of the castle, paintings, porcelain, and silver treasures in small pockets of the, rub the rubble. He also made his way to Konigsberg's city center, um, cleared away enough of the rubble to make it inside the former municipal building, where Brusov came upon, quote, tens of thousands of loose pieces of amber, which were just apparently strewn on the floor. Other pieces were packed into boxes. An inventory located nearby suggested that a hasty evacuation had taken place here. The inventory listed dozens more crates that had been shipped from Konigsberg in the care of Carl Andre. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Finally, we have a lead. This is getting interesting. No. One of Brusov's German crewmen lowered the boom. Carl Andre was Konigsberg University's director of paleontology and geology. The amber collection that had been partially evacuated was renowned throughout Europe but had not adorned the Amber Room. It was a geological, paleontolo paleontological <laughs> collection comprising some 120,000 pieces, including the most valuable, a quote, life-size replica carved from resin. It was about this point that Brusov probably really started to accept that the Amber Room was, by whatever means, destruction or evacuation, really, really gone. Nonetheless, Anatoly Kuchumov, the head palace curator who had come up with the plan to paper over the Amber Room in 1941, he refused to accept Brusov's conclusion. With the support of Stalin and the KGB, who naturally, I think, because of their, you know, their goals, wanted to recover as many of their own valuable cultural treasures as possible, Kuchumov had Brusov denounced and he began his own investigation not just digging through the rubble of Konigsberg, but through a series of interviews which become more and more insistent as time goes on. This was perhaps, like I said, in an attempt to divert attention away from his own, you know, errors in judgment. But the KGB also took up the case of searching for the Amber Room, with all of the, you know, obsession that you might imagine. 
they conducted thorough investigations around Konigsberg, leading many to believe that they thought the artwork was hidden somewhere under the city in its labyrinth of, you know, tunnels and underground chambers, basements, things like that. At this point, I would be curious to know where your instinct is leading you. Me, I recognize it's entirely likely, although sad, that the Amber Room was destroyed in the Konigsberg bombing. But it's also so enticing to entertain the idea that it wasn't. I, I completely get the urge, whether it's on an institutional level, you know, from, from Stalin's government, or on a personal level of those Soviet scholars to just refuse to admit defeat. From here, it feels like theory after theory, just one after the other, and they're just coming at us. The most, I would say the most well-known theory is that the Amber Room was loaded onto the Wilhelm Gustloff, a German ocean liner that sailed from the Baltic port of Gotenhafen in January 1945. The liner was evacuating to over 10,000 wounded Germans away from Konigsberg, and of course was also rumored to be carrying treasures from the castle. This military transport ship, however, was torpedoed on January 31st. 1945. So if the Amber Room was aboard, it likely would have been, once again, destroyed. The wreckage of this ocean liner, however, has been explored in several dives, and nothing linked to the Amber Room has ever been discovered there. There are other beliefs that the Amber Room was transported out of Konigsberg by train, um, where it could be hidden in Weimar, under, underneath the city and its catacombs, or in some of the mines that crisscross the country. Um, Nazis have been said to use caverns and caves and mines to hide important artworks, and the Amber Room, you know, could be among them. There are also theories that rewrite history altogether, namely that Stalin actually had a fake Amber Room constructed before the Nazi invasion. Isn't that convenient? Um, so that they never actually got the real thing to begin with. This one, I, I think, is a little revisionist. I don't know if I believe it, um, but, you know, it's out there. Now, there has been one conclusion that has pretty much been deemed conclusive by most people who, like, aren't looking to just claim that the Amber Room still exists, if you know what I mean. Like, if you, if you want to just believe what the evidence tells you, this is the conclusion. It comes from a major source for this episode, which is a 2004 book by British investigative journalists Catherine Scott Clark and Adrian Levy. Um, anytime you've heard me quoting throughout the episode, that is where I was quoting from. Um, I'm sorry for, you know, not telling you that sooner, but <laughs> I didn't want you to Google the book and then, like, get the end spoiled for you. So... After Scott Clark and Levy's exhaustive research, the process of which actually makes up like the body of the book. Oh, I didn't tell you what it's called. <laughs> the book is called The Amber Room, The Fate of the World's Greatest Lost Treasure. And this isn't just a book that like examines conspiracy theories from behind a desk. No, Scott Clark and Levy, they actually like they do the legwork. They're traveling all over they're getting a lead from, you know, one person in a dark alley and then following it up and that person's leading them to another source. Like, it's, you're, you're on the journey with them and it's, it's a really good read. Anyway, <laughs> are you ready for their conclusion? Scott Clark and Levy conclude that Brusov was right all along and the Amber Room was destroyed at Konigsberg. Their conclusion echoes the very first official reports from Brusov over, what, 80 years ago now? Summarizing all the facts, he wrote, we can say that the Amber Room was destroyed between 9th and 11th April 1945. Now, the authors of this book, they do have a theory of their own, and that is that the extensive investigations by the Soviets into the location of the Amber Room were nothing but a ruse to cover up that initial mistake of destroying, basically, their own treasure when they refused to pack it up and ship it out. The Soviets may also have been on a mission to learn if any of their own soldiers had been responsible for, like, the room's destruction, um, either in the recovery efforts or at a different point um, along the way, depending on where they think the Amber Room went. Again, we're in the realm of, like, mystery here and hearsay. For whatever reason, whether they were trying to cover something up or what, 
1968, the Soviets ordered Konigsberg Castle be completely destroyed. And this is something that was protested by like heritage and cultural officials all over the world. But what it did, this move, it prevented anyone from further investigating the Amber Room's last known location. The question then becomes why? Why would they want to do that? Interestingly, adding another layer of intrigue here, there have also been deaths among individuals who have taken up the case of the Amber Room over the years. A former German soldier and a historian named Georg Stein was found murdered in a Bavarian forest in 1987 after dedicating a large portion of his life to locating the Amber Room. He had been, gruesomely, disemboweled with a scalpel. Then there was General Yuri Gusev, or Gusev, I don't know. He was the head of Russia's foreign intelligence unit, um, and he died in a car accident in 1992, which, you know, is perhaps innocuous on the surface. But he was later found to be a major source for a journalist who was investigating the whereabouts of the Amber Room. Now, some people look at these deaths, and even if they're not going to chalk them up like directly to the KGB's involvement, they do chalk them up to a so-called curse of the Amber Room. German museum director Alfred Rode and his wife are two others who have been said to have fallen prey to the curse. Um, I'm not saying they did, but some people say they did. Um, they died of typhus while the KGB was investigating the Amber Room's whereabouts. And also, KGB, if you're listening... I'm not looking for the Amber Room. I'm I'm barely even going into the theories. I'm just providing the facts. This is you can just Google and find this stuff. So please don't, um, please don't come for me. Thank you so much. I might be digging my grave a little deeper here because my next paragraph is actually pretty saucy. Um, the mystery and myth of the Amber Room actually turned out to be a pretty useful propaganda tool for the Soviets, both during the Cold War, as Scott Clark and Levy posit in their book, and beyond. There are rumors that the Soviets discovered, actually, the nearly intact Amber Room during further excavations at Konigsberg prior to 1968, but they hid the discovery from the world to keep the blame of theft squarely on the Nazis. And so that's why it's a propaganda tool. Keep, keep the blame, you know, somewhere else. The big bad wolf, he's, he's in another country. He's not here with us, right? It's also been theorized that the Amber Room was actually found, but damaged by the USSR's Red Army, which would make the government's halting of any more official searches make a bit more sense. The Soviets ordered their replica of the room in 1979. Um, this would end up costing 11 million US dollars, including that $3 million gift from a German corporation that I uh, mentioned earlier. Their recreation would end up taking over 24 years to complete. But in 2003, it was ready to go, and the Amber Room was once again installed in the Catherine Palace. The Kremlin announced when the project was nearing completion that they would invite 40 heads of states and governments to the opening, which was set to coincide with the 300th anniversary of the founding of St. Petersburg on the 31st of May, 2003. The unveiling ceremony was jointly hosted by Russian President Vladimir Putin and then-German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, making the new Amber Room a hefty modern symbol of unity between the two nations. Which, doesn't it just echo the original treaty, <laughs> the original peaceful settlement behind that first gift from Frederick I of Prussia to Tsar Peter the Great of Russia? So, whether you believe that the Amber Room remains buried somewhere, lies at the bottom of an ocean channel in some deteriorating shipwreck, or has indeed been destroyed, one thing is certain. It is still very much alive in the memory of the former Russian Empire. And in the minds of just the historically curious, the conspiracy theories aren't helped by some actual breaks in the case that have come over the years. In 1997, an Italian stone mosaic called Feel and Touch was found in Germany. What made this discovery so remarkable was that this was the final missing piece of that series of mosaics which had decorated the Amber Room, the other three of which were found in the rubble of Konigsberg. Feel and Touch, the fourth one, had been in the possession of the family of a German soldier, who claimed to have helped pack up the Amber Room for evacuation meaning that he could have stolen it from the palace in 1941, 
or from the castle in 1945. The mosaic was recovered by Russian authorities and was used in the reconstruction at the Catherine Palace. Many people still believe that the hunt for the world's greatest lost treasure is far from over, and that a similar break in the case could come for the Amber Room itself. The belief here is that the Nazis hid the room as they did so many valuable artistic treasures, in a hard-to-reach location with zero documentation. The search for the Amber Room is ongoing, and it now encompasses locations all over the globe. As recently as 2020, there were some headlines claiming that a wreck linked to the Amber Room had been searched. Divers in Poland located the wreck of the SS Karlsruhe. Karlsruhe? Eh, German, I, I really don't know, I'm so sorry. Um, a German ship which took part in a larger evacuation of over a million total German troops and civilians from East Prussia. As the ship carried 1,083 people from Germany on April 13th, 1945, it was attacked off the coast of Poland by Soviet aircraft, then by a torpedo, and it sank in less than three minutes. The wreck holds military vehicles as well as many crates containing as yet unidentified contents, among them, of course, rumored to be fragments of the Amber Room. If that's the case, and I'm not saying it is, we need to open those crates to be sure, if that's the case, then the priceless amber now resting on the bottom of the Baltic Sea will have come full circle, returned to the place from where it was once fished to adorn the chambers of emperors and kings. Today, you can visit the recreated amber room. It is in situ at the Catherine Palace, which is now part of the Sarskoi Selo State Museum and Heritage Site. They refer to it as their, quote, ninth wonder of the world that we gratefully received from the hands of Russian craftsmen. Not German, not Prussian, but Russian. That's going to be it for me today. Um, further reading, I really, really do recommend um, The Amber Room, The Fate of the World's Greatest Lost Treasure by Catherine Scott Clark and Adrian Levy. Um, I can't recommend that enough, especially if you are interested in the process of like historical research and what it comprises when you're looking to tackle something like this. Um, there are also a few, you know, documentaries and stuff about the Amber Room on uh, the old YouTube. Um, it's just so beautiful. If you didn't get to look it up during the episode or look at any of the images, please do. Um, most of what we have of the Amber Room is like the original. They're hand colored photograph reconstructions or like hand-colored black and white photographs from before World War II. Um, but the recreation, you know, it gives you an idea of what the original would have looked like, although without probably as much candle light illuminating it. But I digress. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the show further, I am on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash matta underscore of underscore fact. Um, you can follow the show at Art of History Podcast on Instagram. We are on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, but like, who uses X anymore? No. Um, and also on TikTok, at Art of History Pod. Um, of course, I continue to make my own personal TikTok content, at Matta of Fact. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to leave me some personal feedback, feel free to send me a message on the Instagram or to artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one.